Amen. Sing it again. No, just taste it. You may say it. Turn back to the book of Romans if you have your Bible with you. If not, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read from chapter 11, the first 16 verses. And we will look at verse 11 through 15 today. After finishing chapter 10 with the quoting Israel, where God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Verse 1 of Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table Become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as I just said, this is your word. Your spirit must take your word. And apply it to our hearts. That we might come to faith. That we might grow in grace. That we might be delivered from backsliding. Or uh, you know the need of every heart, Father. So we humbly look to you and pray that your spirit would do exactly that. Apply your word to each individual heart. According to our need. For your glory. And our good. So help me to preach your word. Truly and accurately. Help us to hear it as your word. Desiring, even panting for it as the psalmist says. That we might know you. And love you. And live in your grace. For it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Did you ever intentionally try to make someone jealous? I can, I can remember a few years ago when I would be dating somebody and we would break up and then maybe there would be a gathering or a party and I would show up with somebody else. 
And maybe I even made a deal with that person. Look, you just go to the party with me. That's all I want you to do. I would show up there with somebody else, but my point was to make that other person jealous. The person that I was really interested in, I wanted to make them jealous. It looked like I was moving on. But really, what I was seeking to do was win them back. Jealousy can sometimes be productive. We're going to talk about a a different ploy. Mine would have been much more manipulative, right? But God's is pure. But today we're going to talk about God's sovereign plan to make Israel jealous. To make the ethnic Jews jealous in order to bring them back to Himself. See, we're in chapter 11 of Romans and we've, we've been studying through the book. We've not exhausted it. There's much more to do. We could start in chapter 1 and go through and get more from it. But we've seen that, as Corey mentioned today, apart from Jesus Christ, we are all lost and need a Savior. And that's Jew and Gentile. That Christ is that Savior. And that, that salvation is a free gift to those who, by God's grace, trust in Jesus. And the soul that He justifies, that He brings to faith in Christ and therefore declares righteous because through faith in Christ we are pardoned for all our sin and credited with His righteousness so that we're declared righteous by God. The soul that He justifies, He also sanctifies. He begins to conform into the image of Christ. So we talked about that in verses 6 and 7 and into 8. And that crescendo where nothing can separate us from His love. And then we began this section we're in now in chapters 9 through 11, talking about Paul's burden for the Jews and how does this all fit together? What, how does the salvation of the Jew and the Gentile work together so that we end up at the end of the story with, we read in Revelation, a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language around God's throne. Worshipping Him, shouting and praising Him for His salvation. Well, we're getting a peek behind the curtain in chapter 9. And we're not finding an old man pulling ropes or whatever in like the Wizard of Oz. We're finding a glorious, sovereign God who's working out the salvation of His people, both Jew and Gentile, according to His will and for our good. So after Paul's burden in chapter 9, we saw him state that God's Word has not failed. That's the theme verse for this whole section in chapters 9 through 11. God's Word has not failed. Even though most of the Jews have rejected their Messiah and only a remnant of the Jews are being saved, God's Word has not failed. Why is that true? First, we talked about God's sovereignty and election in chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. Point you back to those sermons if, if you're curious about that. And then our previous section to the one we're starting today in, in 9.30 through 11.10, that one focuses on Israel's responsibility. So we have sovereignty and responsibility. Israel's responsibility for the fact that the majority of them reject the gospel. They chose to reject it, and they were hardened in their unbelief. We saw that in the last sermon. In this text that we start today, in verses 11 through 32, Paul asks whether ethnic Israel has been permanently rejected. Whether, whether, whether God has forsaken His promises to them and forsaken uh, the majority of the Jewish people. And we see Paul's answer to that question is an emphatic no, but we'll get there. See, today we begin to see that God's judicial hardening that we've been talking about, His hardening on Israel is temporary. And one day it will come to an end. And this will be accomplished through God making Israel jealous. That's why I titled it, Making Israel Jealous. In chapter 11, verses 11 to 15. So the very simple main point, God will make Israel jealous in order to restore them through the gospel. So we'll talk about Israel's jealousy and Israel's restoration. And we'll apply that to ourselves and see what we can learn from it. Look look first back in verse 11, Israel's uh, jealousy. 
First, we see that we've already talked about this and we've talked about them stumbling over the stumbling stone, which is Christ. And we'll, we'll read a little bit, read that again. But it says in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That they might fall into ruin forever. Did they stumble that they might fall into ruin forever? By no means. By no means. That is, that is hard to bring through into English. If you read different translations, you'll see that treated differently. But just know that that's the strongest possible no answer in Greek. It's the strongest way to say no. Absolutely not. God forbid. By no means. God has not given up. The Jewish people have not stumbled in order that they might permanently fall. Well, what is, what is their stumbling? See, we've already talked about that. Just, I'll just refresh you right quick. They stumbled, um, they stumbled through false expectation, number one. The Jews were looking for the conquering king. The Messiah would come and conquer Israel's enemies. The Messiah would come and conquer Rome and remove Rome's boot from Israel. That's what they were looking for. They missed Isaiah 53. They missed other places where the suffering servant was talked about. They missed seeing that the suffering, the Messiah would come and be a lamb and would die for the sins of his people before he would come again as the conquering king. So they had false expectations. And therefore, they stumbled in their minds. They missed the suffering servant. They missed that Jesus was their Messiah. So, flowing out of that, they stumbled with their actions. They stumbled in that they denied the righteousness of God. We've already talked about that. The righteousness of God that is a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. They denied the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They rejected grace in favor of their own works. They thought they could keep the law and be good enough. It was an abomination to their mind that the Messiah would come and die. So they missed it because they didn't understand God's Word. Let's just review. We'll read this. Romans 9, 30 to 33. What, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And it's not. Now look at the language. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And notice that's a person. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever repudiates and rejects their own works and efforts to be righteous who sees that they're nothing but a failure. They cannot be righteous. All of their righteousness is filthy rags. And so, in despair and in horror, they turn and see that mercy is available in the Messiah, in Christ, Jesus Christ. And they receive Him and believe upon Him as their Savior because they finally understand that Christ died for our sins. Yes, He lived for our righteousness. He fulfilled the law for us. And He died for our sins. And He was buried. And you know what? He was raised the third day. Proves it all true. God says that's the proof. He is given so that everyone might know they have a responsibility to repent and trust in Jesus. That's the end of Acts chapter 17. And many a smart person has set out to disprove the resurrection and has failed. And actually become Christians. Because it happened. It happened. So we have confidence when we believe in Him. And it says at the end of that verse, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. When? At the judgment. At the judgment. Why? 
For God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not be put to shame, but shall have eternal life. See, righteousness, we've seen this in our study in Romans, the righteousness that God requires, this perfect righteousness, this perfect keeping of His law in thought, word, and deed, we haven't done that, but Christ has. So through faith in Him, that righteousness is credited to our account. And also through faith in Him, all of our sins are washed away by His sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And He was raised for our justification, proving it all true. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone this morning? Has God worked in you a conviction where you see that you fall short, that you need a Savior, and you have turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to be that Savior? Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Not just an intellectual assent, but an actual entrusting of the soul and the life to Him. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? If so, no matter how you feel, you will not be put to shame. If not, no matter how you feel, you will be. Because if you try to stand on your own two feet in your own performance, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's already said that. But if you're a weak sinner who sees his need and humbly turns to Christ, even with not a perfect faith, because none of us have a perfect faith, if you look to him, like the old preacher told Charles Spurgeon when he was converted, look to Christ. If you look to Him and hope in Him and maybe look as the tax collector did, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll, you'll not be put to shame. That's what the Jews had failed to do. That's how they had stumbled. They thought it was by works and so they pursued it by their own works. They didn't see that it was by grace and that Christ was a suffering servant that they might turn and trust in Him. So they rejected him. They killed him. Sought to stamp his gospel out. It's a bad stumbling. But it's not a permanent one. Paul's an illustration of that, isn't he? He was actually one that was actively seeking to stamp out the church. And God had mercy on him and turned him into an apostle. And not just an apostle. Think of this. A Pharisee turned into an apostle to the Gentiles. He's a picture of it. Part of the remnant. But the question Paul is asking, is there stumbling? In there, is their unbelief permanent? Has God written off Israel, the Jews, ethnic Israel? And his emphatic answer is no. Now look at verse 11b. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means, look, rather, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Wow. God had a plan for it. God didn't cause it. Remember, God doesn't work evil in anybody's heart. He doesn't create unbelief in anybody's heart or cause them to stay in unbelief. But He can sinlessly use it for His purpose. And He's using it to get His gospel to the ends of the earth. They deserve condemnation and many of them would get it. Would get justice. It's a just judgment, not injustice. Right? But God's plan was through the Jews' rejection of their Messiah, through their stumble and their sin, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And you see that in picture. You saw that in Paul's preaching ministry a lot. Where In Acts 13, where he turned and he said, okay, you don't want to hear this? Then I'm going to the Gentiles. <clears throat> he went to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. It's kind of how we see the plan working out. Through Israel's trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles. God has a plan. He will use the Gentile salvation now. He has a plan for that. Look at this. So through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. To make them jealous. God is intentionally making Israel jealous. So we see the same structure here that we saw in the beginning of chapter 11. You see a question asked. You see an emphatic no. And then you see an explanation. 
God hasn't permanently written them off, but he has sinlessly used their unbelief to turn to the Gentiles and to save a people among the Gentiles. And he's going to use the Gentiles then to make the Jews jealous. And that's what he's up to. God is intentionally making them jealous and it will work in his time. You ever see a child who has something another child likes or wants? And they'll take that thing and go, na, 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 na. And then laugh and run away. They're just peeking at that other person and other child and trying to make them jealous. Now, not in that kind of attitude, but Paul is saying that the Gentiles' life should be and by God's grace will be an instrument of creating jealousy in the Jewish people. Our lives are to be making others jealous, not in a prideful, selfish way like the child does it. But we should be overtly knowing and enjoying our God and His salvation. So that people do ask us for a reason for the hope. Listen, they might look to us and say, you are going through all this difficulty. How in the world do you still have joy? Well, some of us hadn't read Ecclesiastes and are rooted in God's grace. And we're walking around like we've been baptized in pickle juice. And therefore, nobody's got any curiosity. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that your suffering is producing Christ's likeness. We rejoice in our sufferings when our theological heads are screwed on right. We don't expect this to be paradise. We know we're going to suffer here. Christ, look at the cross. We're to look at the cross and say, He suffered for us like that. We're to arm ourselves with the same mindset, Peter says. And when we suffer, we entrust our souls to Him who judges justly. If, if we didn't have any trials, we would be some of the most miserable people on the planet. Spoiled, like, like a child who's been given everything they want. You can't hardly be around them unless God changes them. I was one, I know. And if we're coming into contact with any Jewish people, we should be saying things like, I love your scriptures. Especially Isaiah 53. And you know what? A lot of them have never read Isaiah 53. They've been forbidden to read Isaiah 53. Because there's no way to explain away Isaiah 53 when you read it. It reads like a, a news report of the crucifixion and resurrection. And it was written 700 years before Christ ever hit the planet. I've told you all this story before. <clears throat> that there was a college student who had a Jewish roommate, and he was constantly trying to witness to the Jewish roommate. And the Jewish roommate finally told him, I don't want to hear any more about your Jesus, and don't you read the New Testament in my presence out loud anymore. So, our prayerful, crafty Gentile brother in college prayed about it, didn't give up on his his Jewish roommate, And one day he starts reading Isaiah 53 out loud in the dorm room. And his Jewish roommate said, I told you not to read the New Testament to me anymore. To which he turned to him and said, I'm not reading the New Testament. That's your book. That's from Isaiah. And God used that to convert him. The Jews trespass is unbelief in their own Messiah. And we too should be seeking to lead them back. And that's what Paul does. What we see here as we look at this text, you're going to notice, I'm going to skip verse 12. Verses 11 and 13 and 14 are parallel. And verses 12 and 15 are parallel. So as I explain this, I'm going to skip and we're going to come back to verse 12 in the second point of the sermon. But look at Paul's example. Look at verse 13. He's just he's now told us that salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Now, look at verse 13. Paul applied that in his own life. 
He said, now I am speaking to you Gentiles as much then as I am apostle to the Gentiles. Look at him. He says, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why are you doing that, Paul? Look at verse 14. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, thus save some of them. That they will get eyes to see and see the Gentiles enjoying their very own Messiah and his very own salvation. Something they should be enjoying. So Paul is saying, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles for a lot of reasons. This is not the only reason. But one of his is his deep burden that we've already seen in Romans for his Israel brothers and sisters. So one of the things he's doing and he's, as he's faithfully serving and reaching Gentiles and planting churches and seeing all this done is that in his, in his mind, he's seeking to magnify that ministry back to his Jewish brethren so that some of them might come to faith in their own Messiah. So he serves, yes, to save Gentiles, but also to make his Jews, his fellow Jews jealous as they see Gentiles coming to and enjoying the salvation of their Messiah. See, God had a plan for Israel's unbelief, and it was to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that they might come to faith. And then he's going to use that to turn it back on the Jews to make them jealous and to bring them to himself. What a plan. So let's turn and look then at Israel's restoration quickly. Or maybe not so quickly. That's just something a preacher says. Okay. Kind of meant to give you ease for the rest of the sermon. Look back in verse 12, Israel's restoration. We're getting hints now that are going to help us to interpret when we get to verses 25 and 26 and following. But we see hints in the text. He says, he says, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and we've seen that in the previous verse, their trespass brought salvation to the Gentiles. To the Jew, there's Jew and Gentile, and that's the world. And those outside, you get it. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, just another way to say the same thing. Now, watch this. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Or how much more will their fullness mean? What have we seen? We've seen Paul saying there's a, there's a remnant, there's a partial, there's a piece right now that's chosen by grace, that has come to faith and is preserved. And the mass of Israel around this piece is unbelieving and rejecting the Messiah, rejecting God. That unbelief has been used for riches for the Gentiles. That's their failure. That's their trespass. We've talked about that. How much more then will their full inclusion mean? Now look at verse 15. You kind of see this kind of same kind of question. That's why I said they were parallel. For if their rejection, rejection on the basis of their rejection of God, their trespass. If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, salvation to the Gentiles. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So look at verse 12. You have fullness or full inclusion and then you have acceptance in verse 15 so those two those two words there fullness or full inclusion in verse 12 and acceptance in verse 15 these words emphasize god's initiative to make israel jealous and reinstate them to his favor god's going to flip the remnant among the jewish people God's going to flip the remnant. This doesn't mean He's going to save every single one of them. But it, someday it's going to be the remnant that don't believe. And the mass does. Right now He's using the remnant to take the gospel to the world and to the Gentiles. But someday that remnant is going to get flipped. And there's going to be full inclusion. Right? There's going to be Reconciliation for them and acceptance. A day is coming when the hardening of the Jews will be removed. And they will turn in mass 
to their own Messiah. We're going to we're going to study this verse later, but I'm going to read it now and just point out one thing. Romans 11:25. I'm picking up in the middle of the verse. I know a partial hardening has come upon Israel forever. <clears throat> Is that what that says? I'm down here in case you hadn't caught it yet. Right here. A partial hardening has come upon upon Israel, upon ethnic Israel, upon the Jews. Until there's a terminus point. Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. There's going to be a day when the fullness, same word, of the Gentiles come in. Doesn't mean every Gentile is going to come in, but the full number of the elect among the Gentiles will come in. And then that hardening will be lifted. One day, this hardening will end. And they will weep. And they will mourn. And they will turn to their Messiah. Zechariah talks about that. We'll see that later. The hardening It's not forever. That might give us a little bit of urgency. There's coming, I don't know how many Jews we have in the room. Maybe we have some who are unbelieving. There's coming a day when that door is going to be shut. Are you in? Are you trusting in Jesus? I don't know whether or not I'm elect. If you believe, you are. You don't have to worry about that. There's no finding a little E somewhere. Repent and trust in Jesus. One day the hardening will be lifted. See that? See the parallelism between verses 12 and 13? If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then verse 15, if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, that is an interesting phrase right there. Life from the dead. What does that mean? Is that just coming to faith? Or is that talking about the resurrection? Very learned people have come to be. Yes, certainly. A, if you come to faith, you have... have Eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know most scholars understand life from the dead in this verse to be a reference to the resurrection of the dead? In other words, when the Jews in mass come to faith, the end. Resurrection. Tom Schreiner says this, The salvation of all Israel will be the climax of this age and will be followed by the resurrection. I don't know about you, but I started getting really excited when I started reading this stuff. Not scared. Excited. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of this world. I'm willing to stay here. And and I'm not in a hurry to go, but hey. Look at that. The salvation of, quote, all Israel. When the remnant is flipped, when their their fullness starts to come in, when, when their acceptance comes about through making them jealous so that they turn to their own Messiah and trust in Him. The salvation of all Israel will be the climax of this age when... And will be followed by the resurrection. Look at Acts 3, 19 and 21. Thomas Schreiner quoted this in his commentary. Look what Peter's preaching to the Jews after the blind beggar, after the, the beggar has been healed, the lame beggar. He says this, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Look, and that he may send the Christ Appointed for you, Jesus. Now look what he continues to say. Whom heaven must receive until the time, 
until, there's that word again, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke through the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Heaven must receive until. There's coming a time when Jesus is coming back. Is it connected to the mass turning of the Jews? These men seem to think so. Douglas Moo says this, At the climax of this age, her, he's talking about Israel, her hardening will be removed, and the present tiny remnant of Jewish believers will be expanded to include a much greater number of Jews obedient to the to the gospel. And so as Paul puts in it in his famous assertion, all Israel will be saved. Notice how he started that paragraph. At the climax of this age. So God is intentionally working through saving a people from every other tribe, tongue, and nation the Gentiles, to flip that on the Jews and make them jealous and bring them back to Himself. See, God hasn't given up on the Jewish people. We'll see that as we end the chapter. Um, We'll see it as we continue. And we're not going to talk about verse 16. That's a transitional verse between this section and the talk of the olive tree and the branches. So I'm going to save that for next time. So they're saying at the climax of this age, you're going to see a mass. You want to say revival? Okay. Among the Jewish people, you're going to see the remnant flipped. Is this close? Are we any nearer to this than we have been in the past? Is there any evidence that God is mightily working among the Jewish people? Maybe so. The Times of Israel, a solid, large news source, right, for Israel. This is a Jewish paper. And you'll see that in some of the language. But look at this quote. that It's in your bulletin, I think. But you can read it on the slides as well. And I'm going to break it up because I have something I want to show you. So maybe follow the slides. This is coming in, this is in 2021, okay? And it says this, and remember, these are Jews being scared by this, not liking this, wanting to stop this, much like the early church. So in their eyes, this is a problem, and you'll see that as we read through it. It says this, and this is in March of 2021. Five years ago, there were 15,000 Jews in Israel who converted to Christianity. That didn't mean there are 15,000 Christians in Israel. That means those 15,000 were converted five years ago. Today, missionaries boast that the number has doubled to 30,000. Experts, now watch this, experts in the counter-missionary field and those who are trying to stop this. This is, this is a problem. Experts in the counter-missionary field are reporting the same alarming rate, alarming rate of Jews who are joining the church. It's opening up. Where we are, I don't know. I'm just telling you. Think about this. <clears throat> Israel, the land of Israel, is some 290 miles long and 85 miles wide at its widest point. You know, it's all, it's kind of... 290 miles long and 85 miles wide at its widest point. I know you just got a great picture of that in your mind. You got it, right? <laughs> Think about this. New Jersey... New Jersey is, is the most densely populated U.S. state, and comparatively, it's about the same size as Israel and has about the same number of inhabitants. New Jersey. And maybe you still don't have a mental picture yet, so how about compared to North Carolina? That's the size of Israel compared to North Carolina. And as far as square miles... Israel is about the same size as what we call eastern North Carolina. So maybe that's helping you a little bit. Uh, There's 9,700 square miles in eastern North Carolina, and there's some 8,600 square miles in the land of Israel. So 
We're not talking about the whole state. We're just talking about this part being the same geographic size as the nation of Israel. So you got that in your head right now. Listen to these numbers. This is this is, again, the, the times of Israel. So they're still talking about the problem of Jews converting to Christ. It says this to get an indication of the severity of the problem. There are currently more than 300 messianic organizations active in Israel today. This is not talking about Gentiles. What is a messianic organization? It's Jews that have come to Christ are now seeking to reach their brethren. Put that picture back up. What if there were 300 missionary organizations, faithful missionary organizations dedicated to reach eastern North Carolina? That would be a lot. And we got a lot of churches, but they're not all faithful missionary organizations, okay? He said, the severity of the problem is indicated by the fact that there are more than 300 messianic organizations active in Israel today, including congregations, ministries, schools, Bible studies, and missionary-run guest houses. There are over 200 websites operating in Israel that target the Israeli population with the intent of converting them to Christianity. Now watch this. Israel is fast reaching the tipping point where Christian missionary organizations become an accepted part of the Israeli mainstream. Hallelujah. You want to be encouraged. Go there are videos that you can go and watch of Jews trying to reach Jews with the gospel and they have to be subtitled because they're speaking Hebrew. But they're taking things like Isaiah 53 to people on the street, reading it to them and asking them about it and sharing Christ with them. So where are we in this whole picture? I I don't know, you know, where we are, but it encouraged me like crazy. Douglas Moo again, the climax of this age, her hardening will be removed and the present tiny remnant of Jewish believers will be expanded to include a much greater number of Jews obedient to the gospel And so, as Paul puts it, all Israel will be saved. God seems to be at work among the Jewish people. It is such a problem that newspapers are recognizing the problem and wanting to know what to do about it. How do we stop this? Ponder that. Meditate on that. Reread the text. Right? Not everybody comes to the same conclusion about it being the climax of the age, but I was encouraged by this this week. And that's what I want for you. The first point of application is be encouraged. Be encouraged. Everything is according to plan. God is saving His people. And there's going to come a day when the script is flipped. And the Jews in mass come to their Messiah. I don't know where we are in the timetable, but we're closer than we were yesterday or when we were born or when Paul wrote this. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh, as the Bible says. Be encouraged, though it's frustrating sometimes and you look at the church in America and you, you see... Things like, I was going to say, Bethel and Hillsong and all of their ridiculousness. And you can, you can, you can think maybe that the church is losing. But she's not losing. And battle scars and sails are tattered, but she's sailing on and his people are being converted among the Gentiles and among the Jews. And someday that process is going to be over and we're going to be with him. So be encouraged if you're a believer. If you're not a believer too, be converted. Listen, I don't mean that as a suggestion. I mean that as a command. 
Because that's how God speaks. Go read the end of Acts chapter 17. He commands all people everywhere to repent. So I'm going to stand here and love you and say, be converted. Look to Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Look at me. Don't assume you have plenty of time. That young fireman in Columbia, South Carolina, thought he had a lot of time. And I don't know where he stood with the Lord. But he went to work one day and he went into a fire in an apartment building. And that thing fell on him and it was over. So get serious about your life and about Christ and about the gospel. And turn your little self around and get over yourself and trust in Jesus. Because that's what God commands you to do. And He's given everything necessary for you to do that. And the resurrection proves it's all true. Thirdly, if you are a believer, be devoted. If you know Him, the knowledge He gives of the future of, through His Word should fuel your devotion and growth in grace. This should be the most exciting thing we do every week. Is gather to worship God. And that will give you a read on your heart. It gives me a read on my heart. I'm the preacher. I have to come to church. I don't know where some of the rest of y'all are. I'm looking around. I hope you, well, I don't hope you're sick. But I hope you're on vacation or there's a good reason you're not here. That's what Peter says. Knowing that all these things are to be dissolved, what manner of people ought we to be? Set your hope fully on His grace and be holy as He is holy. Jesus wasn't playing when He lived and died and was raised. God's not playing when He calls us to faith. Is your grasp of the gospel big enough that it demands your life of you? If not, it's not big enough. Press into Christ. Press into grace. Not legalism. Press into this salvation that is yours. Press into knowing this Savior and living for this Savior. Because the more we are in tune with His will and His Word, the more we're going to have the joy He intends us to have. And this will be the high point of our week. And we won't let other things take its place. And we'll train our children to be the same way. Be devoted. You know the future to some extent. Let that fuel your growth in grace. Grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And grow in His grace. And then number four, I'm done with this. Make somebody jealous. Intentionally, try to make somebody jealous. Not by going an old crooked legalistic finger and telling them how bad they are. I mean, we need to be honest about the situation and about our sin. But may your life, and I mean, I'm not saying witness with your life. You've got to open your mouth or they don't know why you're living the way you're living. But your life should be giving off this aroma of the joy of His salvation. And as you go through the difficult, hard trials of this life, you should be going through them in hope. And so people around you see that hope and want to know more. Listen to me. Celebrate your God and His goodness. Why would we be ashamed of Him? Let His light shine through you. You too, like Paul, can be an instrument through which God makes another person jealous. So with the witness of the gospel and the life of devotion, some will hate it and some will love it because God's at work. Be intentionally focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, living for Him. And that includes enjoying Him. Some of us don't know what that means We're so stinking legalistic. We don't know what it means to enjoy God. 
All our Christianity is is a list of do's and don'ts, and we mostly focus on the don'ts and criticize other people about those. Enjoy Him. That's your main purpose. What's question number one? Why don't we get this? The main purpose for which you were created. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God with a frowning face. To look, walk around looking like we've been baptized in pickle juice. To glorify and enjoy Him. See, the Jews seeing Gentile enjoying their Messiah is what's going to make them jealous. And the only thing that will fuel enjoyment of God in your life is grace. His unmerited, free, self-sacrificial grace to save you. Christ came to die for His enemies. He lived for us with great joy, for the joy set it before Him. And He died for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And He was raised from the dead. And He's reigning for His church now to see this gospel go to the ends of the earth, to call him, His people to Himself. And He calls us to be joyfully devoted in that mission. See, if my, if my life is just me begrudgingly doing what God tells me to do and wishing it was some other way, that's not Christianity. You're still focused on you. But see, when you really get the gospel, you see that His commandments are, are tuning me for the joy He created me to have. My joy is found in His glory. Obedience to Him should flow out of my understanding of His grace and produce in me a joy that stays with me through the ups and downs of this life. So just like when you're dating and maybe trying to make, make, an, make another person jealous to win them back, but on a higher, a holy level, live for Christ And trust Him to use you and create both jealousy and conversion in those around you. Be the kind that Paul's talking about, an instrument in His hand. Let your light so shine before men, women, boys, and girls that they see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven because you're living and you're speaking for Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Help us, Lord. We know we all fall short. We know some of, we, we are easily distracted. We, we wake up every morning defaulting to the rules and just the do's and don'ts. We forget that your purpose is to have your joy in us. That we might be walking delighters who delight in their God because of His grace, who who joyfully live for His glory, who quickly confess it and repent of it when we don't, and who encourage one another in the fight. Thank You for what You allow us to see of Your plan and purpose. You did not have to tell us how You're working in the Jews and in the Gentiles and how all that's going to climax. But You have. So Your Word gives us hope. And it gives us joy. And it creates in us and renews in us faith that we might walk in a different way. One that delights in glorifying You. Work it in us and use us and work through us so that others become jealous in the right way and want this Christ as well. Lord, we praise You. Save and sanctify your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray.